Today's podcast is all about the multifaceted nature of competition. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. I think you have to keep, just keep that open, curious attitude in order to make things go well. You just can't control the outcome because there's just so many variables. You know, this this uh, control is an illusion. And if you spend all your time batting away people who might uh, usurp what you feel is yours, then you're not concentrating on the game. It's just not going to go well. Hey, everyone. Hope you're having an awesome week. And I'm so excited about today's podcast. It is called Embracing Competition, Cultivating an Adaptive Mindset with Kim Perkins. And this is a conversation that I was very excited to have because I have been thinking about what competition means for years. I've spoken about it on this podcast. I've written about it. And now I got to sit down with somebody who has been studying it and who has a PhD in positive organizational psychology. Kim is a former pro speed skater and former journalist who has devoted her life to adaptation. With a PhD in positive organizational psychology, Kim brings a unique perspective to the playing field and to this conversation. Together, we explored the multifaceted nature of competition, including how it can be both a source of inspiration and a powerful challenge in our lives. From reframing rivalries to embracing self-compassion, we discussed powerful strategies for cultivating a more adaptive mindset around competition. Also, if you want to see my take on competition, feel free to go to the show notes. I I recorded a podcast episode, I believe, last year about this, but you can read the article and find the podcast in the show notes in the links section. So Kim and I dive into the heart of the matter in this episode, discovering how to approach competition with curiosity, compassion, and authenticity. Plus, don't miss out on Kim's new book that will be coming out in the future, Winner Take None, which offers a fresh perspective on competition and society. And you can check it out on her website. After all, competition isn't just about winning. And that is what I love talking about. It's not only about being a winner. It's about growth, resilience, and pushing beyond our limits. Join us as we explore how competition shapes our lives and the power of an adaptive mindset. Competition can be a very complicated thing because there are many different forces at play. There are the pressure of what other people are going to think about you, of the expectations that you are trying to meet, whether they are your own expectation or the expectations of others. There is the relationship aspect. How do you show up in a competitive environment whenever you might feel threatened? How do you view your competitors? And I have to say, over over the years, when I was a, first a professional mountain biker uh, like 15 years ago... I would look at the start list and I would hope that the quote fast people wouldn't be there so that I could do better in the race. And over time it's changed. Now I'm actually happy when there are the best people in the world at my races because that pushes me to be better. And that means that my results are going to be even more meaningful. So competition isn't only about winning. It's about how can you get the best out of yourself and what conditions can you create in order to do so? Also, how can you adapt to the conditions to do so? Whether you're a seasoned competitor or actively avoiding a competition, this episode is sure to spark insights and inspiration, and it applies not only in sports, but also to the workplace. You will hear Kim talk about looking at rivalries and a unique perspective in order to do so. We talk about finding compassion, enjoying the ride, how to approach competition with curiosity, and how to set realistic expectations, which can be incredibly difficult, especially Um, whenever you are somebody who has very high standards of excellence. I'm currently in my last semester in my master's in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm starting to think about my thesis for the summer. I am doing a thesis focusing on perfectionism, people who have exceedingly high standards for themselves, known as self-oriented perfectionism, and how those people experience or don't experience a sense of accomplishment and things that we can do to intervene in order to feel more of a sense of accomplishment whenever things just don't feel good enough. 
If that's of interest to you, make sure you are subscribed to my newsletter at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter, because as soon as I'm done with my master's, I will be picking back up the newsletter again to a more regular cadence and sharing things that I've been learning all year and along the way. Also, in case you missed it, I worked on a documentary with a film company called The Heist in 2020. And it was about athlete motherhood and identity and challenging cultural norms. It was when my son Bradley was born, my first child, and we filmed the documentary when he was about, gosh, I'm going to say six months old. Since then, I have had another child. I have returned back to racing in my career. So I have a lot more commentary that I would like to add. But the um, documentary got to travel around the world to many different film festivals. It won lots of awards. But one of the rules about film festivals is it cannot be readily available to the general public. So now that it is done traveling, it's now available to you. It is called Benched, and I will put a link in the show notes, but anybody with a link can watch it. You can also find it on my social media at Sonia Looney on Instagram, but it is called Benched. It's about nine minutes long, and it has been so impactful for many of the viewers, and I hope it is for you too. With that, let's dive right into this podcast with Dr. Kim Perkins. Kim, I'm so excited about our chat today. Me too. This is so, one of my favorite topics and I'm so excited to get dig in with you. Yeah, so we connected through a mutual friend and podcast guest, Oren Davis, who um, I was telling him about my interest in competition and how I've often talked about competition and he sent me your way and you and I had a very interesting conversation. So tell us about the book you've been working on. You know, I wrote, I wrote a book that I called Winner Take None, which was about sort of like the taboo side of competition in a way, sort of the stuff that we don't talk, that we think about, but we don't talk about. So this book was based on some of my, for lack of a better term, journeys in athleticism. So I was a, I was a pro speed skater before I was a psychologist. And one of the things that I found while both working as a researcher and was comparing it with my experience as an athlete and feeling like the research didn't really cover my experiences very well, especially when it came to some of the positive stuff about competition. And so that's what I wanted to explore in the book and also talk about the ways in which competition can hang us up and some ways that we might overcome it. So something I've been wondering is if being competitive is a trait or if it's something that we learn. Mm, I think that is such a great question. You know, a lot of the literature really treats it as a trait. There was a, a research article that influenced me quite a lot, uh, Dean Carnivale. It was good news for competitive people. <laughs> 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 because competitiveness gets kind of a bad rap in the literature. You know, it goes back to like Karen Horney, who talked a lot about competition, actually. She was a student of Freud's. And so in the early psychoanalytic days, she was talking about how the competitive person wants to simultaneously dominate and be loved, which she did not think was possible and which to her was definitely a sign of something wrong. And I, you know, but I kind of resonated with that. And I, I and as a person who specializes in motivation, I think that people kind of want what they want, you know, and therefore it's not so much about how to get them to be different, but how to help get them what they want without also having that wreck everything. So yeah. how's that for a wiggly answer? Was, no, I, I like that answer. And I, I like that quote from that researcher, a uh, Freud student, because I think that we compete for different reasons. And the reasons that we compete changes over time, or it could be multifaceted. But I think that actually one of the reasons that we compete is because we want to feel special. And whenever you've gotten these external rewards on something that was previously intrinsically motivated, I think it impacts your self-worth. And then your self-worth becomes tied to how well you perform. And then that can create a, a difficult situation whenever you're in a competition, because now you have to be better than in order to feel like you're a worthy person. So can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, I'd love to talk about that a little bit because that was the that was something that I investigated in my master's thesis, which I was working with Jean Nakamura at, at Claremont, who works with uh, Mike Csikszentmihalyi. And in that, I the literature on flow. So let's just talk about flow for a second. Flow is a state of kind of relaxed, losing yourself in an activity. It's considered like a peak experience, and so people 
uh, the literature always said that people who were worried about winning were going to have less flow, less ex positive experience in competition because they were by nature worried about winning. And so they were having anxiety and worry about their self, uh, their self worth, their self concept. And one of the things that, that that didn't really sit well with me because my experience was that competition kind of added to the challenge of the game and that that was therefore something that could produce more flow as we know that flow comes from a balance of like challenging activities where you're in a little bit of over your head and the, not enough to make it full of anxiety but just a little bit to give it a little spice you know and so i thought it might have to do with what we thought we were doing here in competition so I did a study where I surveyed uh, triathletes and runners and compared what their version of competitiveness was. Basically, were they trying to demonstrate their dominance or were they trying to benchmark themselves and challenge themselves against other people? And when it was the latter, they experienced more flow in competition. And when it was the former, where they were trying to demonstrate that they were better, then they experienced less flow. And so the meaning that we make of competitive events and the meaning that competition plays in our life has a lot to do with how we experience it. So how do we learn how to change the meaning? Because when stakes are high, I can be really challenging to make adaptive meaning out of competition, especially if you lose. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody likes to lose. <laughs> I mean, by nature, right? But but also it depends on what you think about it. So so as a competitor myself, especially in the beginning days when my first few races I was racing pro, I I I didn't just lose. I was like last by a long shot. I was like way behind the pack coming in over the finish line. And honestly, it was difficult and demoralizing. I spent a lot of time like in bathrooms crying. But at the same time, I kind of loved what I was doing and I felt that I would rather do it and lose than not do it because losing was hard, you know? Mm -hmm. And and so I think that it comes down to your love for the activity. You know, there, there's a, a Robert Valerand is a researcher on passion and he has a definition of passion that is um, harmonious passion means that it kind of fits in with your other activities and and it, it feeds your life. And obsessive passion means that you're really stuck on something that isn't feeding you and is sucking energy away from your other activities. And so I think that that's what a person really has to, to weigh with this is whether this is in general feeding your life. You know, you're, you as an organism, you as a unit who's connected to other people who eats and sleeps and loves, you know, is this feeding it? Or is this something that is like a, a need that you have to do in order to do anything else and is sucking energy away? And that's how you can tell the difference there. And if it's sucking away, then this is time to maybe, you know, rethink what you're doing. Because also, my belief is that that a lot of competitiveness comes from fear. So I used to joke that I won a lot of races as a skater because I was just trying to not come in last, you know? So it wasn't for me about winning. It was about avoiding being last. And I know for myself, that was a lot of, because I'd come from a background where I was bullied a lot and, and it felt really good to, you know, be on top and throw my weight around. And frankly, you know, I don't know if you've experienced this, but as a woman, there are very few places you can actually be aggressive and it's okay. And not not experience social fallout. And skating is one of them. I think a lot of sports is one of them. And so it felt good to just, you know, be out there on the field. And that kind of worked for me. And then I could be relaxed in other ways. But I think that's not always the way it works for everybody. That's a really important point that I've actually never thought of before. I've always been in male dominated environments in my background, like engineering, <laughs> cycling. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you said that people can have their harmonious passion, loving an activity, finding true joy in an activity can become an obsessive passion where their identity gets tied up in it, where they're doing it, even though now it's detrimental to everything else in their life. And they continue to do the activity regardless of that. I think where it gets complicated with competition is that a lot of times we start doing something, we'll, we'll just stick to sports because that's an easy metaphor. We start with the sport because we like it. It's fun. And maybe we realize, hey, like maybe I'm kind of good at this or maybe I want to push myself. So I'm going to do a competition just to see, you know, how much I can actually do. But then yeah. you 
but then you start getting accolades and that impacts your relationship with the activity because now it's no longer, I'm just doing this because I love it. It becomes, well, now I'm doing this because I want to win or make it even more complicated. Like I'm getting money to do this now, or I'm getting attention to do this now. So, you know, how can someone stay harmonious? What are the things someone needs to do to stay harmonious whenever they start engaging in a competitive environment where they start getting these external rewards for the things that they're doing? That's such a great question. You know, it reminds me basically of like the standard movie locker room speech, right? Where the coach is urging the play there. It's, it's, you know, it's halftime and they're down and the coaches, coach is urging the players like get out there and play like it's the sandlot and you're 11 years old, just the joy of the game. Right. And then they come back and they, they can concentrate on the game and they win. And, you know, it's a cliche, but I think that's really what's going on here is that you have to do it for the love of, of the activity and not for the accolades. Now, obviously if you're a pro athlete, you're going to, there's um, a, it's a lot more complicated. You've got careers and other people's careers riding on this too. And at the same time, I still don't think that changes my answer mm-hmm. because you, one of the things that's pretty clear from the flow research too, is that if you concentrate on getting the rewards or getting the external rewards, then you're not concentrating on doing the work and then your performance slips. So I don't really think that there's a substitute for that. And it might seem blithe to tell somebody who's got, you know, millions of dollars riding on the line for this, that they need to pretend that they're just 11 years old and doing it for the joy of it. But I think that's the only way to go about it. That actually makes any sense. And that allows you to really concentrate on what you're doing and not concentrate on who you are and all of the other BS that, you know, because when you're, and you know this from being pro athlete, when, when people, people attribute a lot of things to you that are not really true or that you didn't earn, you know, when you're a pro, people will, will make up stories about your performance and what's going on. I, I remember after skating, I would read some of the message boards and people <laughs> interpreted race and I would be like, that has nothing to do with what was going on out there. I can't believe you thought that up, right? That is <laughs> it's so wrong. And I think if you get too involved in all of those trappings, you're going it, to, it's going to be really hard to put in a good performance. Yeah. I heard you say focusing on the game and not focusing on the self or to put it another way, like instead of evaluating how I'm doing every single minute, focus on what you're doing every single minute. And then you can have more flow experiences because you're not self-focused. Beautiful. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and everybody has good days and bad days. Everybody falls, you know, one one of the things that was enlightening to me when I first started skating pro and I was, and I was getting the chance to follow around some really amazing people and see how they treated their sport and how they, 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 you know, took the course was that often the people who are the top pros would look like crap in terms of their technique. Half the time they would be like, ah, almost <laughs> falling and pushing the envelope and doing dumb things. And, you know, that's because they were not trying to be that cool guy. They were playing with gravity, you know, they were figuring out what they were doing. They were concentrated on, you know, the relationship between them and the track and that, or them, them and the road, you know, and that's what made them great. Yeah. So self-judgment is a big part of competition for a lot of people. We just talked about focusing on the self. Are people who are very competitive, more likely to be more self-critical? Oh my goodness. Yes, absolutely. I think this is where we get into, you know, I, I, I think that <laughs> oh, I have so many thoughts about this. One of the things <laughs> that I have often thought is it's it's not always a good fit with a feminine role to be openly competitive. You know, in my sport, I used to joke that the guys would, you know, on the finish, on the start line, they would be like, oh, I'm going to kick your ass today. It's going to be, you know, you're going to eat my dust. And the girls would be, gosh, I hope I can keep up with you today. You know, <laughs> and it would basically mean the same thing, but just not overt, right? Mm-hmm. Inside, you're but, thinking, eat my dust. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know that if I say eat my dust, it's going to come back to haunt me. So I can't do that. Right. So So instead kind of go into perfectionism as a way of, of, I think, I think a lot of women go into perfectionism as a way of experiencing their competitiveness where we're trying to do everything right and and hit all of the different things. We're trying to uh, do all the right things and look good doing it and be nice to everybody. And it's, you know, that's a great way to not focus on having a good performance. Right. Mm -hmm. 
one of the things I learned from training with the guys is that they would often come across the finish line in looking in, in this terrible form, but first, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and I would run into a lot of people who are more perfectionistic, who would rather keep perfect form, even if it meant that they couldn't like dig deep for that extra bit, you know? And I, I, and I think that perfectionism is a, is a, a really difficult trap for competitive people because not because I think, and I think perfectionism is the wrong word. A lot of the time we have very high standards, obviously for ourselves, but it's not so much about trying to be perfect as much as it is a feeling of survival. I think that people who are very perfectionistic feel like they need to hit all these marks and be excellent, excellent so that they can be accepted or okay or trying to avoid something bad as opposed to trying to promote something good. And that's where I think it goes wrong a lot of the time. Yeah. And that really makes me think about the whole point of positive psychology, which, and that you've, your PhD is in positive organizational psychology, correct? Organizational psychology. Yes. Yeah. Like positive psychology isn't about, isn't only about fixing the bad. It's about promoting the good. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, the, the framework a lot that I think is, is the positive framework, which is why something other than pain points, let's actually promote, mm-hmm. see what good is and make more of that. For example, you know, building on exemplars rather than trying to fix problems. And it often leads you to very different conclusions and very different answers. So people listening to this, they're like, I am highly competitive. I am just trying to survive. So to prove that I'm good, what are some things that they can do to kind of reshape their mindset around competition to make it more adaptive for them? One of the things that I like to focus on with my coaching clients is rivalry. Because often, especially my my female clients, we will be focused more on what one specific person is doing. And I found that rivalries tend to come about because of similarities. We tend to feel rivalry with people who are similar to us in some way that makes us think that we should be, we'd better be better than them or that they're a threat to us in some way. So like this comes out in the literature, it's like, it's not the person who is first in 10th ranking don't really feel a rivalry. It's the like third and fourth, for example, or first and second, they feel more of a rivalry. And so what I often have my clients do is to first list the ways that they and this person that they're having an issue with. And maybe it's not really a hot competition. Maybe the other part, the other person may have no idea, right? But if we're having feelings about it. It can still wreck our relationships. It can take us, it can draw focus off our work. Um, other people on the team may definitely know, even if we're not really completely dealing with it. And so it's good to deal with your feelings of rivalry, you know, and to deal with them, I'd say, let's, let's take a look at the ways you're similar to this person. And let's look at, take a look at the ways you're different than this person. And usually that has a tendency to go, oh, they, uh, I'll use myself for an example. I, there's a, a person that I felt rivalry with as a skater who had been skating a lot longer than I had. She had really grown up in the sport and I had not. I came to it as an adult. And once I realized that, I felt a lot less pressure to beat her at her own game, shall we say. And that way I found the ways that I could excel. Like, for example, I'm a very tall, skinny person. I am not a sprinter. I'm the opposite of a sprinter, but I will beat anybody in a long distance because I can just, I can go and I can do hills. And so I, and it really helped my game because then instead of trying to feel like I should be a better sprinter so that I can beat this person, which was never going to happen because they completely different build than me, then I could really uh, focus on what I could do well. So seeing the similarities and then seeing the differences, I find really helps interpersonally for quelling negative competition. I almost wonder if people that have more empathy have a harder time with that because they can really feel look and look at ways that they're related to somebody else. How am I similar to you? Yeah. 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 I mean, I've, I've had times when there was another person who I wouldn't say I really had a rivalry, but they definitely felt that they had a rivalry with me mm-hmm. and I could feel that energy all the time. And I remember one time we were having just, it was, it was not in a race. It was just like a friendly little sprint out. And I suddenly remembered in the middle of the sprint that they had recently hurt their knee. And I was all like, I should edge up a little bit because they don't need to be Mm. like going that hard this second. That was empathy on my part. Mm. (laughs) And I was thinking, if I took on the race, I would have just lost right there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
so it's kind of a it's kind of a weird line, right? Yeah, I'm going to go here. So competitiveness among women versus competitiveness among men. We've talked about that a little bit. We but I haven't specifically asked you what are some ways that women, whether it's in the business world or in the sports yeah. world, are different in a competitive environment and how can we create better competitive environments among women? Oh, great, great, great question. <laughs> With a, so, a, a million dollar answer that will take years <laughs> to answer probably, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel okay. So uh, talking about it in business, so I'm going to get out of sports for a second. Mm-hmm. So when I was first researching competitiveness at Claremont, I did a focus group with some of my other, the other women in, in behavioral sciences there. And it was hilarious because nobody would cop to being competitive. Nobody wanted to talk about this. And yet I would watch these women. I would be like, oh, come on. You guys are so competitive. I know that this is the case. I know that you've been in so many competitive environments, but nobody wanted to talk about it. Meanwhile, the guys would talk about it all day long. I, I couldn't get them to stop talking about their experiences competing. So it ends up being very gendered, whether we think it ought to be or not. And I think that, and, and that's because it just has so much to do with gender roles, how we, how we go about this. When women are, my, ex, I'm going to say, make some vast generalizations. And I want to say, I'm not a gender essentialist. I don't believe that women have, it's, I don't believe that women are from Venus and men are from Mars or whatever. But I do think that there are still patterns that are out there that affect what we do. And it's, and certainly affect the way we do it at work and in terms of leadership. And there's, um, women often, if they're competitive with somebody or rivalrous to somebody, then they're, they're fighting or racing 24 seven, whereas men turn it off and on. So with, when I was training with men, we would go out there and try to humiliate each other for, you know, 90 minutes during the workout. And then we'd all go have a burrito and be fine. And I found that it was almost impossible to do that with women on, from other teams who would visit because if they were trying to kill you, they're trying to kill you like all the time, forever, 20, yeah. <laughs> forever in every domain. Yeah. So they wouldn't, you know, so it, the, so the burrito would become competitive in some way, mm-hmm. you know, or like meaningful and, and add all these extra meanings. And I think that that's as women, something that we can just kind of stop doing maybe. Mm-hmm. Because it's not necessary. It's a fear-based reaction. And I think, my, this is my pet theory, I've not tested this, right, mm-hmm. in terms of research. But I think that women are, at least also in business, expected to be all things in such a way that, um, you know, supposed to look good and be nice and still be aggressive and have that, you know, that, that's the, the gender roles that get that pull you in 16 different directions. And part of that is because we don't feel like we can have, we can show any weakness in any of those domains, even if they're super, even if they're not super germane to the business of what we're doing. Um, and that, that really, uh, and that we can stop doing this by stop, by give cutting other women more slack. We can start cutting women, like not making it, uh, such a small needle to thread to do everything right and not cutting people down all the time and not constantly judging. Cause I think that a lot of people are doing that in the back of their minds. And that is both hurtful to other people, but it's also really hurtful to ourselves because that's where I think a lot of the perfectionism comes in is that we see things we wish other people would do a little bit better and we try to do that ourselves. And pretty soon now we're just, we've just taken on way too much, too many things. Um, and I think that that culture can, that, that can change. And I think that that would change if we start doing that, like actively cutting women more slack, it changes our relationship to ourselves and it changes our relationship to other women and that that's how we change the world. Yeah. It also sounds like that means we have to cut ourselves some slack because often whenever we look at other people and are highly critical, it's because we're critical of ourselves. Yes, it's absolutely the same thing. And so, so if, you know, it's really fun to be catty and snarky sometimes, but if we indulge in that, we're also doing it against ourselves in the same way. And so it's not different. And, and if we can give women more latitude to, uh, to be themselves while leading, to be themselves while competing, 
then uh, it's really it's really going to help all of us be more ourselves and be more authentic, which is what we want, and to and to help us get out of that bind where. Uh, you know, for example, with like women candidates where we want to, we want a woman candidate, but not this one, right? Because they're too human. They do this. They have that thing. They're wearing those earrings, you know, whatever it is, right? We, and, and I think, I think that that will help us all. Yeah. So I've heard you say um, in terms of practical application, like number one, rivalry, looking for ways that we are actually different from people who are similar to us that we might be competing against. Um, and realizing that we don't have to do everything their way and be exactly like them. We can be like ourselves and use our own strengths. And then number two, extend compassion and kindness to ourselves and to others and cut people some slack. And that actually might involve lowering expectations because like you said, there are expectations in our culture that women should be ev- they should be doing everything. They should be perfect in every way when really that's an unrealistic expectation. So how do we set realistic expectations of ourselves and others as women in competitive environments? That is the million dollar question. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the thing about competition is that it measures what it measures, right? So like in my sport, it's probably like cycling in this way where you remember what's first, second, and third. You don't necessarily remember the times because that can vary according to the course, right? And, you know, if, but if you're a runner, then the time is probably more important in some ways. You're trying to beat the time. And so it's another case of what gets measured gets done. Mm-hmm. And so I think that keeping to that is actually really uh, helpful and simplistic. I mean, it sounds simplistic, but I think it's really helpful by, to make things more simple. I had a before, long before I was a psychologist, I had a friend who was an oil trader and he used to say, I don't have to be better than everybody who could possibly do my job. I just have to be better than the other couple of people who show up that day. And then when we think about it like that, you're like, oh, on this one metric, right? Just this one metric, just this one day, just these other five people who show up, not everybody in the world who could do it. And, and I think by reducing it, uh, making the game simpler in a way, reducing it to what gets measured, I think it can be a lot more relaxing and more fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're talking about comparison, like comparing to the people around us. And I think that it can be really easy now with a click of a button, you can go online and instantly you're comparing yourself to millions of people instead of before we had a lot of these social networks, you'd be comparing to the few people at work or the few p- people in your neighborhood. And the ballooning of comparison to all of these different people that you see, and you know you don't even see the real things that makes it impossible to have um, the right expectations for yourself because now it's an impossible expectation to meet. Yes, I 100% agree with that. Absolutely. And I mean, social comparison is is the basis of competition in some ways, depending on how you want to define it. But if you're in a race and there's a race time and there's like a list of people or even at work, like there's a hierarchy of, you know, in, in, in the workspace, there's always going to be social comparison. Some people have a really difficult time with social comparison. It, they have, they avoid um, their goals because of the comparison because they're afraid of of what that's going to mean about them or if it's going to be permanent. What um, advice or what have you done in your consulting practice to help people who struggle with this upward social comparison? Oh, that's a great question. And uh, basically, I start with downward social comparison. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you're if you're keyed on, you know, if you if you are worried about not looking like Bella Hadid, you know, then we say, well, you know, let's look at Phyllis Diller. <laughs> you know, let's look at somebody who's not, who is not perhaps doing even, even in the same realm as you. And then you can get kind of a more, a bigger picture. So much in positive psychology, I find is really about expanding the picture that you can see before you so that you can take in the whole picture because otherwise, I mean, and you, I'm sure you know this from your, your, journeys in positive psychology, um, humans have a really big negativity bias. We tend to, what the things that tend to be problems or threats tend to stand out to us really uh, and take up the whole picture right in front of us. And then it's harder to see the things that are going well, the things that are positive. And so what it's really necessary to do, especially in our uh, media environment, which is so full of everything and is so full of threats and potential problems and amping up the drama on everything in order to get our attention. 
um, we really have to take a step back and see what's going well and what else is there and what's not a problem and what feels good and what is seemingly okay in order to get a, a true picture of reality and one that's not skewed toward the negative. So that that kind of perspective taking, I think, is a muscle that we can do and that is especially essential in this time period. And that requires making time to do that, because if you just say you're going to do that or you just think of it real quick, like that's probably not going to be as effective as taking deliberate time to do that. Yeah. And then it doesn't have to be like a long period of time. You know, one of the things I borrowed from like trauma therapy is you know, if you're checking with your body and your tendency is to say what doesn't feel good, like, oh, my elbow hurts and my thumb is weird and, you know, and I've got a little bit of, uh, you know, digestive problems going on. And it's like, okay, well, what does actually feel good? Well, I can't really feel my heel, so it must be okay, <laughs> right? And actually notice that you have parts of your body that feel okay and to kind of feel into that. And that's something that uh, is an exercise that people use that just for a couple of seconds, even that comes from um, from somatic therapy, and I find that that is that's basically something that you can do at various points during the day to help shift your perspective from running around after problems. I also think that's really helpful for athletes because you could be easily focused on that one little niggle that you have, and then you start making this crazy story of, well, now I'm not going to be able to do whatever, and it's going to last forever, and you get into this totally pessimistic style of explaining. <laughs> so much, so much, so, and and I think it's important to to learn how to get yourself out of those spirals. Um, I do with with my clients. I do a lot with nervous system calming, where we where we lean into those feelings, locate them in the body, um, and start you know having a dialogue with them. Where we instead of trying to push them away or worry about them or make up stories about them, we just try to feel them for a couple of seconds. And often it, it's amazing what you can clear with just a couple of seconds of actually feeling it instead of running away or reinterpreting or telling stories or intellectualizing or the million things we do when something feels a little weird. I think that there's a lot of scarcity mindset when it comes, and probably um, among women more in certain circumstances, because there are limited resources, like especially like in cycling is one of those sports oh. where you know it's women have way less opportunities than men. Our sponsorships are way less money than men. Um, it's really challenging. So having the scarcity mindset of, I always have to prove myself and I have to compete against the other people, not only to do well in the race, but for these resources that can create a really constricted, not good feeling and also breed negative culture. And this is something that I try to talk about a lot is like, we're always thinking about how do I, how do I get my piece of the pie and prevent other people, the zero sum game, instead of thinking, how can we make the pie bigger? Um, how can I, be around how can i be positively contributing even if i feel that that constricted feeling i can still act differently even if i feel that way and that changes how we view um competition itself and it changes how we perform like can you can you talk about like how we show up when we feel constricted with the scarcity piece versus like this expansive piece if we are looking at it in a different way that's a beautiful it's a beautiful point that you make there um, you know, again, if we're kind of just going back for the joy of doing, then it's kind of open-ended and curious and we can see what we can do. But if we're going in there with the, the constricted, I have to make something work and I can't let that girl get ahead of me or whatever else it is, then we often, I mean, it's really easy to bait people into making bad mistakes because they're scared. I mean, I think we're, we, you and I are both in pack sports and I don't know if this was your experience, but my experience is that when everybody gets scared, they get really stupid. And so, and very prone to making dumb mistakes tactically because they're scared. And one of, um, and I, I have certainly exploited that on the field. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that I think it's really important that if you stay open and curious, I don't think I've ever won a race where there wasn't a point where went, I went, ah, oh, shit, I am in trouble. There goes that, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, every yeah. single time there would be a moment where I'd be like, oh, I am demoralized. I am in over my head. This is never going to work. And then, but, uh, but then I have to say, well, I don't know. We're going to have to see what happens. And then things would happen and things would change. And somehow I would end up on the top of the podium, you know? And so I think you have to keep, just keep that, that open, curious attitude in order to make things go well, because you, at least in, 
and I, this was the case in my sport, and I assume it's this way in a lot of things. I certainly, I think it's this way in business is you just can't control the outcome because there's just so many variables. You know, this, this uh, control is an illusion. And if you spend all your time batting away people who might, uh, usurp what you feel is yours, then you're not concentrating on the game and it's just not going to go well. Yeah, it sounds like attention control is such a, a huge part of this is like, where's my attention going? Um, how can people train this off the field? Because a lot of times people wait until they're in the heat of the moment at work or, you know, in the race. And they're like, you know, their mind is already there. And this is something that needs to be trained off the field or out of these intense situations. Yeah, I think it's it's working with the meaning and purpose of what the, of what you're doing. It's really what I what I think happens. So I will tell you, I love the heat of the moment. I <laughs> I have this is something for with, with I think with competitive people is that um, I I love a challenge and I can have a bit of a temper because I'm like oh yeah we're gonna fight oh yes we're gonna fight <laughs> it's gonna be really exciting and it's gonna be fun um, and that is often <laughs> the <wrong> response. <laughs> I was getting all amped up and excited with you. <laughs> yeah, now you feel it right exactly, yeah. and so um, so I think that. There's no substitute for doing a little bit of deep dive on the meaning and purpose behind what you're doing, why you're doing it, what you're afraid of, what you don't want to have happen, what would be terrible if that happened, and so that you can get a little bit of distance from it. Um, and the other thing that I think this is going to sound really funny, but I think that that I've been working with a lot of my clients on this lately and it's been really helping them have breakthroughs is I think about statistical thinking. Um, I, by that, I mean... There's a lot of things that would be bad if they happened, but that are also really, really unlikely to happen. And those are things that we don't have to worry about as much. So trying to spend our time worrying about things that are more likely rather than less likely. So once we get in touch with like what we're actually afraid of, then we can kind of say, what are the odds of that happening? You know, is that really likely? What would tell me that that was going to happen soon or what that, you know, how, what, how would I know if I was, edging into that territory or not. And by by kind of eliciting all this stuff that we know kind of under the surface, it can really help us calm down about a lot of things. Yeah, another thing you're talking about is resilience in competition. Like you said, um, oh, that person passed me. I guess it's all over for me. But you didn't quit. Like you, did, you kept going and you kept trying to get the best out of yourself. Whereas some people, um, they get past, they just give up and they don't try to keep doing their best because of the, these these avoidant tendencies. Um, yeah, that was part of the fun of racing because, you know, it's very psychological a lot of the time is if I can pass you with enough speed, then you'll get demoralized. <laughs> and then we'll, oh, you know? Or pretend I'm not breathing harder. Actually, like uh, in some of these stage races, I, I race against men as well. And I'll actually sing them a song as I'm passing them, <laughs> even though I'm dying. <laughs> exactly. That's part of the fun of doing this, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but making sure you don't give up yourself if somebody does that to you. Like, how do you make sure that you don't give up and get demoralized and stay resilient in the heat of the moment? I think you could practice at not telling yourself stories. And I don't really know another way around this. I feel like mm -hmm. this is what therapy is for. Because mm -hmm. we all start off, we we all tell stories about what's happening. I mean, that's we are we are meaning-making machines and we make meaning out of if we see three points, we see a triangle, you know, but mm -hmm. that that may not be what's actually happening out there. And and so I think we have to get into a habit of being curious about what's really going on and not believing our first thought about it, whatever that is. Our first thought may not be the right one and waiting to see how it plays out. One of the things I do with my clients that I think um, has had a pretty good impact for a lot of them has been to, uh, and this is something, this is an exercise that is very old. It's something that Peter Drucker came up with in like the sixties, you know, the father of management consulting, um, which is to, uh, make predictions about what's going to happen. I find that this really happen. This really helps in business because often it can take weeks or months for something to play out. So I will have people if they're worried about, say, a certain employee's performance, say make some predictions about what you think they're going to do and what you think you would do about that and what you think would happen about what. What do you think? How do you think that's going to play out? And then you can revisit it in a couple of weeks and see if you were right. And often you're like, "Wow, that was way off." 
that wasn't what happened at all. And in this way, we can kind of fine tune our uh, our, our suspicions, our intuition, you know, our heuristics that we use to make decisions, we can fine tune them um, so that we can we can trust them more. Um, and also, most of the time, it means that things are a lot less dire than they may appear. Hmm. Yeah, it makes me think like you were talking about negativity bias. It's like we have a negativity bias that creates prediction errors whenever something bad happens. Yes. And then we tend to make assume the worst case scenario and apply like the, these like pervasive, um, problematic, um, you know, lenses to the things that are happening. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a thing, you know, in psychology about effective forecasting, mm. we're terrible at it. We have no idea. We, we think that we're going to feel a certain way about something and it's going to be really bad most of the time. And then we'll get there and it's like, oh, that actually isn't that bad at all. We're really bad at predicting how we're going to feel about stuff. Yeah, the anticipation. Think about being a kid and you're in trouble or um, you get an email from your boss that says that that might have a tone that you didn't like. And then you start assuming all these things about what they're going to tell you. And then you do all this stuff. You have all the suffering because of what you're assuming is going to happen. And then it turns out it's actually nothing. Maybe they wanted to actually tell you something good, but your mind played all these tricks on you to make you think it's going to be something bad. That happens all the time with emails. And when I work with teams, I'm often amazed <laughs> at how often just like the smallest little bit of tone can set off this chain reaction. And we can't keep in mind, we cannot control that. But what we can do is uh, assume positive intent <laughs> <laughs> and go question with curiosity as opposed to uh, being defensive all the time. Something that's kind of a sidebar, but something interesting. You, you've used the word curiosity a few times. Um, are you familiar with Jed Brewer's work at all? I'm not. Please tell me. Yeah. So he's a um, a neuroscientist and he, he does a lot around habit change and he's written a couple of books about this. But he says changing your habits using curiosity instead of judgment helps you um, change your habits. So instead of just saying, I have to do it this way, I, I'm not allowed to drink. It's like or, or smoke or whatever the habit is. It's like, yeah. Drink or smoke, but do it do it curiously and ask how is this really affecting me? And that actually changes the way that you change your behavior. So it sounds like that that actually really applies in, in the this environment as well. Like how am I showing up in a competitive environment, being open and curious instead of just saying it has to be a certain way or I have to be a certain way? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you know, the world is large. There's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of variables. And just because we think you know, we think that so, so, and also we're just, we're, we're intelligent beings. We're responding to stuff. You know, if you're smoking, and I say this as an ex-smoker, I used to smoke in high school. I always, I always make, make the joke. When I started working out, I stopped smoking. I always make the joke that it's like my hobby is breathing, you know, recreational breathing. <laughs> um, the, the, uh, when you're smoking, you're doing, you're not doing it just randomly. You're doing it because it does something for you. And if you just say, well, I shouldn't do that, then you end up with an unmet need that is either you're going to keep smoking or you're going to find another way to meet that, which may not, which may be as bad or worse, right? Mm -hmm. If you go in more curiously, then you can kind of do some discovery and see what's going on here. See what you're responding to. A lot of times we're responding to just weird feelings in our body that we've learned we can either detach from or push down or divert our attention away from by, uh, you know, doing something that ends up being destructive, whether that's smoking or looking at our phones or whatever. And sometimes just locating that feeling in your body and working with that is the easiest way to get yourself to do what you want it to do and be open about what that thing is, you know? So for the last couple of minutes, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. Um, we talked about perfectionism just a little tiny bit. We talked about competition. Um, and I was curious if people who are highly competitive have a difficult time accepting their accomplishments. So say they're really competitive and they win the race and they tend to be a bit perfectionistic, but maybe that win is still not good enough because so-and-so wasn't there or they weren't perfect in the race. Like, oh, do, you yeah. do you encounter that in your work? So much. So much of the time, so much of the time. I remember talking to somebody who had just made the world team in my sport and they were like, yeah, but Helen wasn't there. So, you know, again, back to my friends, the oil traders saying, you don't have to beat everybody in the world who could possibly do this. You just have to beat those people who show up today and then it's yours, you know? And then nobody, and really people can't take that away from you. 
nobody else, if, you know, if, if you had an accomplishment and I said, yeah, but did that person show up? <laughs> I would be a bad friend, right? I would be a little bit of a toxic presence in your life. So, but, but why do we accept that from ourselves? Yeah, that really sounds like, you know, you look at this, the self-compassion interventions, like how would you, how would you treat a friend and like doing that to yourself when it comes to how would you treat a friend in this situation when it comes to your sense of accomplishment and your, um, your accolades and things like that, are you rejecting them and would you, but maybe you would reject your friends. Maybe you would say that to a friend, which is toxic. Like I actually know people (laughs) who have actually, who have actually done that. Like, yeah. yeah, like I've actually, um, you know, accomplished something in a race, and they said, "Yeah, but so and so wasn't there." It's like, wow, <laughs> Ow, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now we know. <laughs> no, it's true, and that's that would be something that's about them, right? If they say that, and mm-hmm. so like you don't have to do that to yourself. Mm-hmm. No, I can't believe that we're already out of time here, but I think we covered a lot of ground. I think we gave people a lot of practical things that they can do the next time they show up to competition and in preparation for competition. It sounds like a lot of this is, um, attention and narrative training and making sure that you're looking at the whole picture, not just one small part of the picture or making the picture too big, comparing yourself to every single person ever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Right on all that. So where can people find your work? Oh, come find me at kimperkins.com. Uh, always happy to hear from you. And, uh, there, yeah. And there'll be some new, new things in the new year. Cool. And, um, is there a launch date for your book at this time? Right now I don't have a launch date, but if you're interested in it, you can get on my mailing list and you'll be able to find out when it does. When it does. All right. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. And this was such a fun conversation. My pleasure. Thanks so so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode and that you learned a lot about competition. I'd love to hear what you think about competition. If you want to send us a message or share on social media or just send me a DM, I am always interested in hearing how people perceive competitive environments and what is working for them to get the best out of themselves. Hope you have an awesome week. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. We'll see you right back here next week.